for joining. Uh, there we go, recording in progress. Uh, so I'm Mark Fisher with Lane Office in Falkville, New York. I'm the co-chair of the Young Leader Committee. Uh, we have an awesome event for this morning. Uh, we have three host, or three people joining us. Dale Schlater, Executive Vice Chairman at Fishman Wakefield. Mark Diezo, Senior Director at Gardner, the Gardner and Theobald. And then Ryan Mitchell, Director of Real Estate at General Atlantic, who's also on the Young Leader Committee. We're gonna cover a few topics and then we'll have some time for uh, Q&A at the end of this but I'll let Ryan uh, get it going. And thank you everyone again for joining. Thanks Fish. Um, and yeah, just echoing what uh, he just said, thank you so much for joining. We've got a really um, nearly 85 people on the line here. So it's a really uh, big turnout. Um, and I think that's an indicator that a lot of people are wanting to learn a lot, of, a, a lot more about this topic. Um, leases are complicated, uh, let alone leases in New York. So um, we've got two, um, uh, more than qualified people to join us today to walk us through a, a few points um, that are often misunderstood and overlooked to, to steal Malcolm Gladwell's uh, opening line off the Re Revisionist History podcast. Um, so uh, just before we kick it off, very, very quick housekeeping. Um, just take a second to make sure that you're on mute. Um, don't assume that you are. <laughs> I think often people do. So just uh, double check that you're on mute there so we don't have any interruptions. And um, we're going to allow for some Q&A at the end. So if you have any questions, probably the best thing to do just to um, make sure that we cover off on those is put anything in the chat. Um, and we'll, we'll allow five, 10 minutes at the end to cover off on a few of those or at least as many as we can. Um, so just start it off today before we uh, fire a few questions at Dale and Mark. Um, in putting together the talk today, there, there is a ton of topics that we could review, um, some, of the, some of which we have on the, on the screen here. And, you know, as, as we were pulling all this together and talking to Mark and Dale, we, we kept thinking we're probably going to have to make this into a series because we could literally spend hours and hours and hours um, covering off on all of these different topics here. But unfortunately, we've only got an hour today. So um, we're going to cover off on uh, four topics today. And, and they're topics that aren't the obvious ones. You know, we're not, we're not really here to talk about basic negotiation strategies for rent or what the market's doing. We really want to dig into some, as I mentioned, um, misunderstood or, or overlooked uh, topics, um, which can really come back to bite you if, if they're not handled correctly. So I'm just going to bring up the slides for today. So those are delivery conditions, tenant improvement allowance, floor plate measurement, um, particularly paying attention to how that's calculated here in New York. And, and we're also going to talk about some other methods in other markets as well to keep your eye on. And of course, uh, probably top of mind for everyone is, is flexibility um, and exit strategies, which we're, we're obviously paying attention a lot to today in this market. So um, first of all, though, I, I want to ask you a question, Dale, um, or, or throw a scenario at you. Typically, when someone like myself who's an end user, you know, is working within their company and a decision's made that we need more space, um, you know, we ring up our, our broker um, yourself and say, hey, Dale, I need some more space. We want to obviously pull together some options um, to have a look at, to start touring. But, you know, th th there's more than just a broker that needs to be involved in this, in this process, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about who should be forming part of you know, the team and the, who, who you, you'd be bringing in on the early stages of even your site search for consideration. Right. So what's interesting, good morning, everybody. Um, what's interesting is that usually I love to get those calls. <laughs> and Ryan, anytime you're ready, I'm ready. <laughs> um, but um, I, I love to get those calls and you do. And 
you know, I think when you're working with a tenant that's, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand feet, that's one thing because they usually have a team in place, uh, big corporate users. I, you know, it's, it tends to be the middle market, you know, a floor or two or three. Um, I've been going through a couple of those lately and um, they start with the broker and we, we get involved and we're sending out proposals. We're doing tour Well, we do tours, then we send proposals and we start looking at buildings and now we're negotiating proposals, which ultimately becomes a term sheet. And usually during that process, when we're, you know, after the tours and it would be in a perfect world, I start pounding the table um, to my clients to say, listen, you need to have a project manager, an architect, a mechanical and electrical engineer on your team, starting with the project manager, because they'll help you develop that team unless you already have those relationships. Um, because as we go evaluate space and buildings, uh, I am not that person. I mean, I understand, you know, the quarter glass depth and, and I understand slab to slab heights and mullion spacing and a little bit too much about HVAC that I learned at Cornet. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you're going to avoid mistakes and you're going to make better decisions um, by having that team together from the get-go and looking at the, you know, maybe two or three or four finalist buildings and evaluating them, much like they usually have their architect do a space plan. So the architect is usually on board. It's the project manager and, and the engineers that um, have become critically important, particularly as you start looking at electrical and HVAC and delivery condition issues. Mm -hmm. So um, and, enter stage left, Mark. <laughs> so you you often uh, get involved at this stage. Um, you you know, uh, Dale's been a great broker and, and advised the client to bring someone like yourself on, on board. Um, to start working through and looking at, you know, the design um, phase, but not only design phase, we'll talk about this a little bit more today, some of the, the lease clauses that are negotiated as well. Before we get into that detail, can you just give a quick story or two of where this has gone really well for a client, where they have engaged someone like yourself early on and, you know, they've managed to uh, catch out some issues that they might not have seen and maybe a quick story where it's gone horribly wrong as well, both financial consequences and, and timeline consequences. Yeah, uh, morning everyone. A good process has been where the broker with the client has brought on board the PM, the architect and the MEP engineer up front. Architect from the forefront is doing test fits and say so we're looking at four different properties. And then with us and the engineer, we're doing due diligence of the actual buildings themselves. So we're going in there, look, walking the floors if possible, putting our heads in closets um, and doing independent studies in that regard on the technical items of it. The engineer then comes out with a due diligence report. Architect does the same besides just basic test fitting. And then we put budgets towards each of these. So each building you're looking at does not automatically cost the same. Um, there's nuances depending on heating and cooling, as an example. Um, so that's been very good when they do that up front. When they don't bring us on board early or say it's just the architect and the engineer is brought on board after the lease is signed, there's all sorts of connotations where uh, we've missed something as simple as, you know, how many watts square feet uh, per square foot demand that they need, uh, heating and cooling, the hours of operation, supplemental cooling, not enough tonnage of uh, supplemental based off mm. their need. So the, uh, the way you, you go about that is you do very detailed deep, um, discovery sessions and needs assessment studies with the client facilities and IT team. Uh, that's the best way to get around that. Mm. Mm. I mean, um, I, go ahead, Dale. I just was thinking about this and I, 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 just, and you, I just completed a, a transaction at uh, one Vanderbilt and this was the term sheet for that transaction. And I don't know if you can see this, but I have in the delivery conditions, it says 
to be reviewed by tenants, project manager, and architect because they were not on board yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect segue into, into the first topic that we wanted to tackle today, which was delivery conditions. So, um, as you mentioned, and, and as you astutely put in the term sheet there, Dale, you know, um, the end user is definitely not an expert. The, bro the broker is not an expert. Someone like Mark and, and uh, you know, a company like GNT with all their consultants are the expert. So, so Mark, I want to ask you, um, when you're advising an end user, you, you already mentioned a couple of things that they should definitely be looking for on delivery conditions. But can you talk a little bit about you know, what is typical for um, to, to be included in the base build? What should be handled by the landlord? And and what are some things that the tenant may handle that they should be paying very careful attention to, um, you know, Good as one, it relates man. to the landlord handing over the space? I think it's important to know, depending if it's a new tower going up, call it Hudson Yards or World Trade or Manhattan West versus an existing building, Fifth Avenue Park, Madison, whatever, the delivery conditions will be completely different. Uh, they're typically much more longer and extensive for a new building, and you have pre and post delivery conditions. Um, you know, hitting some of the big ones. The big one is bathrooms. So, is the landlord delivering the bathrooms, or is Dale going to try and negotiate more TI where we would build out the bathrooms as part of our fit out? Mm -hmm. I'm not a proponent of that because we get to own our own destiny as long as we get good money for it. Um, floor levelness is a big one, floor flatness. New buildings are traditionally horrible. I've been here probably 16 years. And my first new building experience with the New York Times Tower, um, we, we actually rejected uh, floors at delivery because they were sloping so badly going up from the core out to the facade. Um, so, but in those types of buildings, you try and put in metrics like a quarter inch in a 10 foot grid, uh, take it from a zero tolerance, call it the elevator saddle with no more than two inches from facades uh, on the east facade to the west versus some of the existing buildings, some of those landlords and they're built better will say, you know what, I'm not giving you any of that. You basically, I'm giving to you clean, no obstructions, quadrants of field, and it's good enough to receive carpet. Mm -hmm. That's the easy one. Column treatment is something that's always traditionally was, we would always ask for uh, spray fireproof and enclosed with sheetrock. Now, without even a design, we don't know if the client's going for an industrial look, it may be intermessive paint. So then we're spending money ripping apart what we had the landlord deliver. Mm. So that's not to be cognizant of. Convectors, the delivery condition of a convector uh, itself is primed or dents taken out, ready to receive paint from the tenant side, replace the grills, new Danfoss valves, make sure it's functional operational. Try and get a written report from the base building uh, upon delivery from their HVAC guy. Uh, sprinklers left in place versus a temp loop is a big one, depending again on the age of the building, talking about some of the older ones. I'm dealing with a lease now downtown where it's an old building, the landlord refuses to, refuse, uh, to re remove the springs and give us a temp loop. So I'm like, okay, well, that means you've got to take out, you have to keep your existing sprinklers, turn all the heads upright and deliver it. And he's mm. trying to figure that dollar. So he goes up and said, you know what, I'll give you the damn temp, temp loop. And Mark, what about, um, just, just on uh, touching on inheriting old buildings or working with an old building, what about in, in New York, can you talk to about ADA compliance? You know, what if you're uh, taking over a, a, a lease, um, sorry, not taking over a lease, but going into a building where, you know, that simply doesn't exist. Would you typically advise the client to have the landlord prep the building so it's ADA compliant? Is it the other way around? What do you it typically see? It depends on the uniqueness of the building. Some of the core bathrooms, if to go ADA, you're basically losing a stall or a wet point. So a lot of clients just choose to take as is with the existing number of toilets or wet points, urinals, whatever, in that core bathroom and build a 
call it an ADA compliant or unisex, whatever you call it, gender neutral bathroom in their demise outside of the court. Sure. It really is building specific, I think. Mm, hey, Mark, yeah. let me, uh, since I'm negotiating this in like three circumstances right now, what would you recommend? Now, you know, the problem is the floor areas are not the same, right? right. Some floors are 5,000, some are 30, some are 35. How many dollars per square foot per rentable would you suggest you need for bathrooms? Um, typically, these days, if we can get 15 to 20, is excellent. And the um, landlords want to give 10, and they say that's enough. That's exactly right. So we typically break it out on the side, and we work with you on the side, right, as part of our team, and say, look, this is what it's going to cost to build it out. And we typically do a per web point. We can, depending on the information, we'll budget it out very clean. So I will prove to you it's going to cost you $150,000 or $200,000 to build out eight men and the same for women's. Divide that and you get a cost per square foot, depending on the size of the floor plate, to your point. Then at some point, you've got enough ammunition now where it becomes a business decision, right? In your order of things you want to negotiate, you know what it's going to cost the tenant to build this thing. So it becomes part of the bigger picture, not just on bathrooms. But we're seeing these days some class A existing buildings. We have recently been negotiating 15, some of the newer buildings up to 20 because the mm. standard finishes are much better in general. Mm. Dale, what, what else would you be um, uh, having a, your clients pay a lot of attention to for delivery conditions? So, one, you know, depending on where you are, one of the things that I just went with, through with this um, transaction at, at one Vanderbilt, um, the space was adjacent to a mechanical floor. Um, and so sound became a big issue in terms mm. of right, having acoustics people. And Mark, I, I imagine you bring them on board. I don't know if that's typical unless there's an extraordinary situation like that. Some exactly. mechanical floors face on the floor though yeah that's a very good point i actually talked to an acoustician or two we don't bring them on board formally but we pick their brain off record knowing that they're going to be bidding the project so they're happy mm. to give it and a lot of the top two or three acousticians in town know the buildings already mm. old on you another thing that comes up is um is allowing the landlord to do some work particularly if they're doing the bathrooms uh, but it could be other things as well Mm -hmm. um, while at the same time that we're doing our tenant improvements. And I imagine, Mark, we haven't talked about this, but I imagine that creates some obstacles for you. And, and, the, and what we put in the lease to protect the tenant from the landlord taking over and getting in the way and, and uh, you know, obstructing our construction. A bad example I had on one of the new towers a while ago was what we could not work within five feet of the core while they were doing the bathrooms. So that was like really dumb. And what happened there, we had the smart brokers and lawyers involved during the lease, and they came up with this fantastic plan, which was like silly. Um, recent experiences where we have a partnering agreement, we're going to get it done together, and we typically take care of it on site. So if I've got Turner Core and Shell, and I've got one of the typical interiors boys that we represent on site, working together, and you know it gets done. Um, the key there is to have certain components. You must have a, a, a finished date for bathrooms. Mm -hmm. and, and an outside date for completion because we can't complete our work until they're 100% out of there. Mm -hmm. And with commissioning and handling units is another big one as well. Another unusual one that I've uh, come up with in the last couple of years, particularly at One Vanderbilt, but also at, at Hudson Yards, is removal of the hoist. Mm -hmm. And particularly at, at, at One Vanderbilt, they had a huge area that, that uh, you know, basically the floor was sheetrocked sheet off where the hoist enclosure was and they had to take that from the top of the building down and it took you know months for for them to remove the hoist and 
then they had to repair that area. So if you were doing tenant improvements in that area, you couldn't do it until they removed and uh, removed that enclosure and the hoist was gone and they had to put the windows in, right? Yeah, the curtain wall backed up. So hoist comes down, curtain wall goes backed up the other way. It's, we have different, it's funny, it depends on the, <clears throat> excuse me, the design of the, of the curtain wall and how that can work, uh, how far you can bring the tenant interiors to the facade while you still got a hoist impact area. Then once the voices down, how then you know how can we work? On Manhattan West, some of the other buildings have been very stringent in giving you a hoist impact area. And we've had many clients in the past, particularly law friends, where we say, you know what, they're moving in. The building still, you know, they've got the TCO, but they haven't finished yet. So they will live with you know two attorney offices not functioning for another six months. Um, we're currently working at the spiral where we're representing the tenants under construction now, and that helps us because. We get to have a much more leeway on the hoist usage compared to working with 10 other interiors um, contractors for other, other clients during construction. And the way that project is designed from a curtain wall perspective, it allows us basically to build almost up to the facade. It's almost like a, a fake wall like you do when you do a hotel renovation. So the comeback work after moving is, is very non-intrusive to the tenant while they're occupying the space. Mm -hmm. It's a huge delivery condition discussion. Uh, the hoist. The funny thing is, we want it down as fast as possible, but I don't want it down because I want to bring my furniture up through the hoist because that's when I can get maximum vertical transportation. So you're mm. playing this. Yeah, fair enough. And to um, finish, the biggest issue I see is is the floor leveling seems to be the biggest fight in New York. Um, the newer buildings tend to be more open to it. Um, older buildings, it's a it's a big fight. They don't want mm. it the leveling, and that can be very you know. I defer to Mark, but I think it's pretty expensive. And you mm. got to be careful. You know, you don't want to have, you know, if you're you're not level, then all of a sudden you've got a, a wall and you've got a gap and you've got to fill that in. It's a real problem, right, Mark? It's hard, and because first it's of all, we don't have the time. It's not only expensive, it takes a lot of time uh, out of your schedule. And if you're using demountable partitions, which may, many more tenants are using these days, it becomes a nightmare. Yes. I think what's important to know is that that's the point when we're negotiating this, depending on the building, we don't really have a design. We might have a test fit. So at least we know, is it an open area plan? Do we have a lot of perimeter offices? That's where the demandables come into discussion. Is it a central core? Is it a side core? That we're there, if it's a side core, you can zone it. So I don't need to level the entire floor off a zero benchmark off the elevator saddle. It's a bit easier. To, the, to Dale's point, the, and we know all the heads of construction, a lot of these landlords, right, the existing buildings, we know what we get away with. And then, again, it becomes a business discussion and we manage it accordingly. The newer buildings got to have a very specific metric that I mentioned earlier. I had a problem once at a building, one nine buildings, where they had, to level in, they had to level in some areas and chip in others. And we ultimately ended up chipping out what they put in and filled in other areas because our floor transitions, the floors finishes themselves were not designed. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it was... I, I, I think this actually brings us nicely onto the next topic so, somewhat, um, it, which is uh, tenant improvement allowance. Um, so um, we just talked about, a little, we, we touched a little bit on, you know, kind of what state of the um, space you're going to be inheriting it, what uh, responsibilities you're going to be uh, taking on in terms of building out the space. But um, I guess looking a little bit more long-term, uh, perhaps post-construction, can you touch a little bit about or on... Um, uh, use it or lose it or pass through abilities when it comes to your TI. I've, say after you built out the space, you've got some 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 dollars left over. You know, what do you want to be thinking about um, in that regard when you're looking at your term sheet and the lease? Yeah. So this is my pound the table issue uh, because landlords in New York 
always want to give you two years to spend your TI allowance or three years or something like that. And I'm, I'm always like, well, wait a second, we're going to pay rent for 15 years or 10 years. So wait, so if we're paying you rent, then, and the deal that we cut was based on $125 foot tenant improvement allowance. And after two years, something happens and we didn't build out our space. You're taking that away? Mm. So are you reducing our rent? I mean, and this, this ends up being a huge fight. And for me, it's, I would tell my clients, you don't go forward, hard stop. Whenever you want to use that tenant improvement allowance. Now, the landlord wants you to put the money in the space. That's what they're going to say. And that's f- fair. They do. But my argument would be the later they put it in the, in, in, you know, they use, use the TI allowance and build out the space, the newer the tenant improvements are going to be if you ever get the space back. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, situations change. And I have seen it. And I have seen clients, not leases I negotiated, but where I came in after the fact that lost millions of dollars in TI allowance because they didn't pay attention. And what happened was they had negotiated it and then they get bought by another company. The other company has an office. They didn't pay it. This is years ago. You know, it's a little less frequent now that this would happen because of the lease admin that everybody has, but somebody didn't pay attention to the lease. And the next thing you know, they lost their TI allowance for a couple of million bucks. And the other one is, passing through, being able to pass through a tenant improvement allowance to subtenants. Mm. Why not? Mm. For the Why, what's, what's the argument that landlords usually kick over to you in that regard? You know, we want to give it to you and, you know, um, we want you to, to spend the money. But realistically, if you're passing it on to someone, it's going to be it, or should be spent at some point. You know, I've never lost the point, but, but um, I did a transaction um, where I started working with Capital One at 90 Park and there was a tenant in their space. It was actually a subtenant, not of them, but they had a must take on the fifth floor. First New York Securities was on the fifth floor and Cap had a must take. They had bought North, North Fork Bank and they had, they had inherited that lease. And that lease with a must take did not allow them to sublease to the tenant that was occupying the space. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we moved them to 299 Park and we sublet all their, we were going to sublet all their space and Vornado would not allow us to do it. In the end, we worked it out. It was a long story how I don't want to get into it, but we were able to work it out mainly because they needed the price, the space for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So we had leverage, but it happens. And it's just a hard stop because when you sign a lease, it takes time for you to finish your plan, start your construction in most cases, and the world can change, you know, look at COVID, um, but mm-hmm. it, it can change for other reasons. It can, can, can change because of the financial crisis. It can change because somebody bought your company. It could be mm-hmm. you bought another company and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you don't need the space. And what happens is when all that happens, everything goes on pause and nobody's paying attention. And then all of a sudden you read this clause in the lease that says you have to use the TI allowance or you can't pass it through. And then what? You're going to build out the space yourself and then sublet it? That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So my advice to everybody is if you're confronted with this issue, you never, ever, ever accept it. Mm-hmm. You should be able to use that TI allowance anytime during the lease, and you should always be able to pass it through to subtenants. And to answer your question directly, the reason the landlords don't want you to do it is because they don't want to pay the TI allowance and they're trying to find money, number one. And number two, they'll use the argument that we're doing the deal with you. We're not doing the deal with sub subtenant. And it's like, but that, that, you know, that doesn't, we have the right to sublease. 
Mm. So, and you, our financial arrangement is rent TIs, free rent. We get the free rent and we get our TIs and we pay you rent over the term. Hard mm -hmm. stop, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and what about, and I think this would be good to bring Mark in on this question as well. What about um, some instances where the landlords are proposing that the TI is, is spent or not spent on certain items? I'm, I'm thinking, for example, um, you know, perhaps not covering off soft costs, for example, or um, to get a little bit more detailed, Mark, you know, um, maybe when it's being negotiated, the uh, freight elevator usage isn't thought of as well, and you have to allocate your TI or spend it on items that you might not want to, <laughs> yeah, because you haven't thought about what to negotiate um, into the lease in, in that regard. So can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and Dale, feel free to, to, to hit off on a couple of other things that come to mind. Yeah, on the elevators and the hoist, again, if we're talking to an existing building, you're basically getting three hours, X number of free hours to use during construction and moving. If you're lucky, it's going to pay for a fifth of it. So it's all about negotiating. The more you can get, the better. Mm. Um, what would you advise? I mean, I know the, the, the scales of projects obviously vary massively, but is there some sort of metric that you would say, hey, you look, know, you, you need a minimum. 150,000 square, square foot law firm now. We went in with 300 hours and the response came in yesterday and we counted at 160. So Dale and his counterpart are going to play the game for the next month, figuring it out. And it's going to become something. So, okay, we'll get to this. Knowing that you're not going to get the whole job built based off three hours off an elevator. Hoist mm. is really different going into a new building because hoist charges, you've got local 14 vertical transportation operators involved, right, until they get their TCO at least. And they typically suck you dry on also including host of accoutrements that go with using the hoist, your loading dock, security, master mechanic. Uh, one of the new buildings, you know, <laughs> they would move the first tenant in and uh, their hourly rate for the hoist was $7.50 an hour. Of course, we all fell off our chair, right? So that's mm. one comment. And we could talk about that one for a while. Back to your other point about um, for TI, typically furniture is not allowed. It's all hard construction. And you mm -hmm. make 10, 15, 20% for soft costs. So mm -hmm. what we try and do is try and get as much money up front as we can for all the soft costs. Then once we start construction, we'll try and get the bulk of that through to like 90% by the time mm -hmm. we finish and ready to move in. So the balance of the 10% is for closing out permits, FDNY and whatnot. Mm. Dale, can you talk a little bit about um, the payment schedule of TI that you should be trying to, to, to think about? Um, you know, monthly payments, is, is it sort of uh, amortized other ways? What would you be advising your clients? Well, I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, address a couple of other things because you need to remember okay. um, as you go along in the process, the tenants negotiation, um, their leverage decreases. So as soon as you have a signed term sheet, um, you, you know, and you go to lease, your leverage decreases because you've given away the other spaces that you're looking at. You may hold them in your hip pocket, yeah, yeah. right? So there are things that you need to deal with um, related to TIs and the build out, and you need to deal with it in the in the term sheet. And by the way, your law firm better get 300 or 500 hours, Mark, because that 160 is ridiculous. Well, we haven't responded yet. I agree. Yeah, but anyway, so. But, um, you know, you have landlord supervision fees and whether or not they should get any supervision fees. The answer is no on initial tenant improvements. They should get none. You probably have to pay for some, um, you know, their costs if they have to hire mechanical engineers and you have to use their mechanical engineer. And this goes back to the first thing we talked about, having the PM team and the architect on board. They want, you know, they, they give you a list of, of vendors that you can use, con you know, subcontractors. And I want Mark to tell me, 
whoever, you know, if we know who, and we may not know, by the way, but he may know the three or four that he wants to use in various categories. And let's get that approved before the term sheet's done. Before the term sheet's done. Yeah, um, right. And, and um, uh, you know, the elevator time obviously is a big issue. On the, mm. on the payment of the TIs, we usually, you know, there's, there, there's too much to talk about in this for this session because there's a lot of counting issues that get into it now the landlords want to own the ti's and depreciate them some do some don't um some tenants do some tenants don't right but obviously I'm, I'm always trying to get the first dollars in are paid for by the landlord um they want to do it peri passu so you know equally you know you have a budget they give you 125 your total cost is 250 50 cents each and then they want you to withhold a certain amount until you get they get everything signed off at the end of the project they get all their um um what's the word mark that i'm looking for the sign offs at the end but yeah close out with the permits and etc DAB, yeah. so right lien waivers and all of that sort of yeah. stuff mm -hmm. so they hold usually 10 percent. they'll ask for you know they'll try to get more but 10 percent is usually it so usually it's pay as you go and on mm -hmm. a pro rata basis, and then you negotiate some sort of, you know, a monthly or so. Some of my clients, you know, the bigger clients, they don't really care. I mean, right. they kind of finish the thing and then they send a bill and they get reimbursed for the whole thing. And, uh, you know, because the, the interest rates are pretty low and they got a lot of cash and it's not a big deal one way or the other. They just want to make sure they're reimbursed. Mm -hmm. And by the way, depending on the landlord, you want to get the right to offset in the event that something happens with the landlord and they default or they're a bad landlord, you want to make sure to get a right of offset, meaning if they don't pay the TI allowance within a certain time, then you get to use take that amount uh, with interest and you that becomes rent abatement that gets mm -hmm. added on at the end of your free rent period. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right. I think uh, that's a really good overview of delivery conditions and, and TI. Um, I, I'd like to hit on uh, a topic that always makes me always confuses a lot of people, which is um, how to measure uh, floor plates, usable areas, rentable areas, particularly in New York, because of course being New York, we have to do uh, things a lot differently to um, other markets. So um, Dale, I I'd love for you to talk through how we go from in New York, from calculating rentable and arriving at a number that is usable and how a loss factor is calculated, what the standards are um, that we usually abide by um, and maybe hit a little bit on some other methods that we're seeing in other markets and what's changing as well. I'm gonna bring up that slide that you uh, sent through to me so you can talk through um, this. And so I, 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 probably, I probably spend more time explaining this to my clients, particularly from out of town, than any other issue. And by the way, they never understand. It. <laughs> um, so I tried to, you know, put something out here that um, will will help everybody to explain it. This is this is a bit simplified. Um, Oops, sorry. Oh, okay. So this is a bit simplified, but there are two kinds of method methods of measurement. One is um, BOMA, um, building office. What is it? Building owners. Management Association, I think it is, building on it, and um, which is everything outside of New York. And then there's REBNY, Real Estate Board of New York. Now, most people don't know REBNY, they actually only define the usable square footage of REBNY. And BOMA and REBNY are pretty much the same on usable. It's changed a little now, but you can see it on the left-hand side, um, that area in blue, which includes the blue inside the core. 
and the basically the yellow is excluded from that, which are you know the vertical penetrations. The difference, the big difference between BOMA and Rebney is that Rebney you can measure to the outside portion of the building. So to put that in perspective, if you're at like Rock Center or something, and you've got a column that protrudes, you know, this far um, outside the building, let's call it a foot, but the but the but the floor plate is, you know, uh, you know. 400, 500 feet long. So you add four or 500 usable feet per floor. Um, it's a, it's a big difference. And, 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 and so you're, you're automatically, you're, you're, you have more square footage because of that. Um, then um, in BOMA, they just allocate some common area things. And actually in doing, in preparing for this, I, I didn't know this, but in 2017, BOMA now allows you to allocate um, the common area like outdoor spaces, or if you have a, um, if, if you have a terrace, um, an outdoor terrace or a rooftop that's, that's yours, that is now usable area for tenants, which by the way, under Rebney, it's the first time I've ever seen Rebney less aggressive than BOMA. Um, but they don't do that in New York. You don't pay for terraces in New York, not directly anyway, if you get, you pay higher rent, but you don't pay the square footage. So then what um, BOMA does, they just allocate that. And, and the typical loss factors um, for, for BOMA tend to be, you know, now they're like, you know, 15 to 18%, something like that. It used to be 12 to 15% back when I started. Rebney, however, there's no, there's no loss factor acquired. Basically, it's a market-driven loss factor. When I started working in New York, in 1995, I was representing ICM at 40 West 57th Street. They had three floors. Those three floors were 18,000 feet rentable square foot, three floors. So 54,000. The loss factor was 18%, which is what it was way, way, way back when, because it was like BOMA. The loss factor went to 23%, and they remeasured the floors. And presto, changeo, those three floors that were, that were 54,000 feet became 72,000 feet. So they added a floor, <laughs> right? Every three floors, they added a floor. And so now that loss factor has been pretty much it's 27%, but buildings like one Vanderbilt are at 29%, 425 Park is at 29%. The newer buildings are trying to push it. And that has a you know, dramatic effect on what the total square footage is of the space and the building. So if you look at this chart, and that's why I say it's like the, the usable area plus the core equals the gross area, right? That's, well, I'm looking actually to the, to the left right now where the red is. And then you've heard the, the, the definition of curb-to-curb uh, -curb measurement. That's because the loss factor of 27% causes the, the actual area to exceed the gross area of the floor. <laughs> That's New York, and that's that red area. So it actually, if you look at it, it's outside. So now if we look at the chart and we assume that, you know, in most cities, you've got a, a floor plate that has 20,000 feet. And as I said before, if with an extra, a little bit of extra from Rebney, you get 20,500. So you got 500 more usable feet. And you can see the loss factors at 15 and 27. You end up with 23.5 versus 28082 a difference of 4,533.53 rentable square feet. And if the rent per square foot is 75, and 
I'm, I put that in as the gross, but let's pretend that that's a net rent, right? So there's 25 of, of expenses or something. So it could be a hundred, but because we're going to do, um, we're going to calculate the net operating income and the value, we're assuming that's a net rent. So the difference is zero. The rent is the same, BOMA versus Rebney, but the total rent you get is is $341,459 on that floor more per year because of the Rebney measurement. And you've got 50 floors, there's no difference. The total rent for the building because you remeasured it at the 27% loss, you make $17 million a year more rent. Mm. And then if you cap that at five, which actually is a pretty high cap rate in New York for a first class building in New York, you just added $341 million of value mm. to that building doing nothing except you're measuring it per Rebney instead of that. So the, the, that's the reason that the landlords do it. And they, they initially did it because they were trying to keep the face rate under $100 a foot. So they kept making it bigger because that was a psychological barrier. Now the psychological barrier is 200 a foot. But so it's changed. But it, anyway, that's what it's all about. And the, the, but the main issue here, other than understanding it is, you need to hire Mark and his team and the architect and measure the floors. Because the landlords cheat. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know if cheat is the right word, but they all measure it a little differently. I've never came to 100% agreement. You're just going to make sure some of them are more aggressive than others. Mm. So anytime you would do a deal, whether it's 10,000 feet, and we'll talk first in a second about multi-tenant floors, but whether it's 10,000 feet or 10 million feet, you measure the space and make sure it's critically important because you're you may not be able to change the loss factor mm. but if they've over if they've measured it wrong in your opinion and you can negotiate that you may get them to reduce the rent you won't get yeah. them to reduce the square well th this is what we were talking about before before we jumped on the call it's really your only point of negotiation here you, you can't really negotiate the the loss factor but you can make sure that the the, the area has been measured correctly and then it'll recalculate from there hopefully in your favor and, and I, have, I have worked on a number of transactions where the measurement was way off. And either we walked away or we were, we were successful in, in, re, mm. in renegotiating the rent to reflect the proper number. And then you've got to make a note in the file, hey, they cheat, you know, the square footage isn't right. So make sure you remember that mm. when you renew. Mark, anything to add to that? Yeah, just to be clear, make it, and Dallas 100% as usual, but like the architect cannot physically, it's impossible to measure the, the RSF, the architect must measure the USF as clearly defined per Rebney, real estate board in New York. Right. And that requires sometimes explaining that to the architects because they, they're so frequently, they just do regular usable, not how they, meaning usable in the sense of space that you actually use. Right. It, and it's very important for us, Ryan, because at a concept uh, cost planning mode, where we're like, again, we're putting budgets together for four or five different buildings. The architect will tell us what the, see, we, we measure per planable or carpetable square footage. Yep. The architect will help us to make sure we align within a foot or two on a usable um, square foot. So we use that for budget purposes, always reporting up to the summary in rentable. Mm. Absolutely. Um, all right, guys, well, we've got 15 minutes left um, and, and uh, I'd love to touch on one more topic, which uh, a lot of people are thinking about at the moment, which is, which is flexibility um, and exit strategies. And then we'll have a, a bit of time for some Q and A at the end. So, um, uh, Dale, let me, let me throw this to you. So 
Um, can you touch on some some areas or some nuances that should be, um, I guess, closely watched when it comes to subleasing and assignment clauses, yeah. um, particularly around pass-through and, and sublesser rights? So, um, you know, obviously subleasing is the, you know, the main exit strategy, but you can negotiate termination rights um, in the leases as well. Um, desk sharing arrangements now have become very popular, you know, 10 to 20% of your space that you can use. It's, you know, sometimes it's just to have your consultants come in and use the space. Um, usually you can get away with that anyway, but you can also mm. rent desks to people, but usually it's limited to, you know, 10 to 15 is pretty typical. I've seen as high as 20. Um, and, uh, but mostly it's sublease and assignment. So on the sublease side, um, there are a few things to watch for. Um, probably, you know, obviously who you're allowed to sublease to and from is probably my biggest issue. And in New York, in addition to the fact that there's recapture rights and recapture rights don't concern me really that much because it's very rare that you make a profit on a sublease. Mm -hmm. So if a landlord recaptures space and term, particularly if they terminate the lease or, or at least the lease for that part of it, because you're doing it for the whole term, that's a good thing. You're off the hook, you write it off, you're done. Um, yep. When you're subleasing, obviously now you've got credit risk. So that's, that's probably not as good. Most people freak out about recapture, but it, like I said, it doesn't bother me as much, but Buildings in New York almost always will not allow you to sublease to or from other tenants in the building. And when you put space on the market to sublease, the highest probability of the tenant that's going to take that space is, is someone in the building, particularly if there's no space available in the building. But, you know, somebody that's looking to grow. And then what happens is the landlord says, no, you don't have the right to do it. And then they say, depending on the landlord, they, good landlords are like, no problem. You can do it. Bad landlords would be like, yeah, give me a million bucks and you can do it or give me, you know, give me more of the profit share. And so you got to make sure that that issue is excluded. And by the way, you want to be able to sublease from, and I put that in the leases too, from other tenants in the building. And it's always if the landlord does not have comparable, comparable and comparable means, you know, locationally size, all kinds of things. Um, space available because they, you know, they don't want to compete with their tenants. And I understand that that's fair, mm. but if they don't have space, let us go get it from someone else and run our business. Cause that's mm. really what it's about. We're not in the, we're in the real estate business, but not really. Right. And so that's, that's a big issue. Then um, you want to make sure that you in the lease in your lease um, as the tenant, that you have the right to sublease to, tenants and give them a recognition agreement. This is particularly true. And by the way, everyone's credit is good till it's not. So Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns had great credit till they didn't. And so you should put it in because things change over 15 years. Can you, can you very quickly define a, what a recognition agreement is just yeah. for folks that might not know? So some people call it an, a non-disturbance agreement as well, which is, you know, non-disturbance usually get from the lender, right? <clears throat> Because if the landlord were to default or go bankrupt or whatever, and the building gets foreclosed upon, and now the lender owns the building, you want to make sure that your lease is not wiped out because technically it's at a lower level than the, the mortgage. And technically, every, all the liens below that get wiped out in a foreclosure action. Yep. So 
since you just spent $300, $350 a foot with Mark as your project manager um, on your space, you don't want to lose that money. And now they come to you, the lender comes to you, and you don't have to, you don't have the right to stay. And they say, okay, now the rent's 100 foot, it was 75, but you know, or so you, you want to make sure up front that that lender, this is the non-disturbance agreement, says, okay, in the event that there's a landlord default and a foreclosure, we recognize you as, we'll recognize you as a direct tenant to the new owner, meaning the lender. Yep. Okay. So that, SNDA. Um, so now when you're subletting, it's the same thing. The recognition agreement is like a non-disturbance in the same for, format, except now the landlord is like the lender in that equation. <laughs> so if, if the tenant, um, for example, I represented Avon at 777. They had 300, 350,000 feet that we sublet. And fortunately in that lease, and Avon at that time, their credit was actually not, not great. But we had in the lease the right that we would get the landlord to recognize any sublease we did. As long as we started from the lowest floor and the highest floor and we went up and down so that we weren't leaving you know, a bunch of floors in the middle exposed. We didn't do one in the middle. But if, as long as we did that, then they would recognize that subtenant as a direct tenant in the event that Avon were to go upside down and default on the lease. And that's critically important to, you know, HSS took four floors. That was critically important to them because they were going to spend money on the space too. Mm. And right. So um, getting that recognition in the lease, what that does is now, if I'm representing some tenant and I'm going in to sublet from some other tenant that maybe has, you know, credit that's shaky or not, doesn't really matter. We want to make sure that if there's a problem, we're not going to get kicked out, particularly if we're going to spend a bunch of money on the space. Mm. And Mark, so that's a very thing to do. Sorry, Dale. Uh, Mark, when you're when you're advising your clients sort of around thinking about future proofing the space, it's probably maybe less of a uh, lease issue, but more of a design issue if you want to call it that what what would you be uh telling your clients um in 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 terms of thinking okay well hey if you want to have multiple uses for the space or or sublease parts off in the future think about x y and z okay if you want to shed space let's call it for sublet or other the big one is making sure you're easily able to bifurcate the um, shaft space your it connectivity um, so you're completely kept intact in your contiguous floors and then they can easily uh, split away. Um, feature stairs, if you've got interconnecting stairs between floors, there's restoration there, right? Someone's going to have to fill in the, uh, the floor and take out the stair. Um, a good example, you've got a law firm, 10 floors. Be cognizant where you plan your amenity floor, conference and amenities, in the middle of the stack. Or if you want to shed space, do it at the bottom or at the top so you know mm. where you can shed if you have to. It's much easier to shed a practice floor than an amenity floor. Mm. Um, yeah, they're three good examples right there. Okay, excellent. Right. One, other, one other thing that I want to point out on, on is, is timing and how, how that's all done up front. Um, because you, you want to make sure, you know, does the, the landlord has the right of recapture, which I mentioned. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is when they recapture. Mm, so yep. what you don't want to do is in a perfect world, what you want to, you know, the perfect world is when you decide to put the space on the market for sublease, you go to the landlord with a notice that says, we're going to put it on the market for the remainder of the term at a certain rent. And then they have 30 days or whatever, it could be 45. You're not in a big hurry then to recapture if they need it for another tenant in the building. That's great. And then if they recapture, great, we're done. 
if you can't get that, then when you have a term sheet done with a subtenant, you go to that subtenant. Um, I'm sorry, you go to the landlord with the term sheet, and then they have a period of time to recapture um, so that you don't have to go, because I see it in a lot of leases, you actually have to go negotiate the lease. So you're going to spend money on law firms and everything else. Mm. And, and if you're but the, the subtenant in that circumstance, when I'm representing the subtenant, I want to ask the question, when, do you, when does the landlord have the right to recapture? Because I don't want to go through the process and then yeah. find out, right? And now I'm screwed. I just yep. 90 days and now we got to get in space and we don't have time. Yep. So yep. that's a serious impediment on the timeline and, and, and an expense for sure. Um, okay. Uh, we've got seven minutes left. Um, let's check out a couple of questions that we've got in the chat for Q and a. So feel free to send in a few of those guys. Um, hold on one second. Okay. Mark, I think this will be a good one for you. How are you advising clients releases as the reporting timelines for local laws 97 approach? To bring on a decent engineer to negotiate on our behalf. <laughs> um, seriously, that is such a topic now. I've seen at least two leases currently working on where it's, get, it's getting very complicated and our engineer is negotiating. It's all about what do we split the cost difference to make sure our tenant doesn't pick up costs that they have nothing to do because of the not able to receive the the, um, the reduction as required for 97. I, I, it's honestly, as a PM, I'm not an engineer. I know enough about it to be dangerous, not enough to uh, bring on my client. This reports back to bring on a decent engineer upfront, mm-hmm. like law 97. Okay. Dale, anything to add to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Local law 97, so that, I call Mark. <laughs> and you know what? I tell you, we're doing two leases now, same square footage, for they're both law firms going into different buildings. One's a Doris building, one's a Brookfield building, and we're negotiating the same stuff on our end with the same engineer on both, and the landlords are coming at it completely different ways mm. from their end. So it's, mm. it's, it's out there. Um, real quick, Larry made a great comment. Always negotiate the ability to add contracts to the approved list. Absolutely. Do that up front. All the big boys in town have their approved lists, and you always add that language because they're always fine. Say, look, we'll deal with it off. I have to lease later when it's us just technical guys on the side of the fence. Add subcontractors and add any specialty disciplines. Make sure you can have diversity and expediters. As much as we love every single expediting company in town, you want to at least have two or three. But landlords are pushing for you to always use theirs these days. So you've got to be cognizant of that, mm-hmm. along with structural engineers. Okay. Um- uh, Dale, I think this is going for you. Are landlords offering incentives and leases since COVID to attract tenants? Uh, landlord turnkey bill that's becoming more popular in your experience. Are tenants just looking? Uh, tenants looking for this? Um, just t- are tenants looking for this over just TI dollars, or uh, can they use themselves? So I'll take the second part first. Um, you, you do see some, you know, pre-builds are kind of a big thing uh, right now. Um, you don't see a lot of, you know, on smaller transactions, you'll see landlord builds outs. Um, you know, again, we could spend a whole day on this subject because um, understanding the accounting implications of who builds out space and mm. how that works. And what, what usually I have is a, is a client, I've done it a couple of times, but it's very hard to do, where they don't want to have to book a lease. Um, until like the next year, for some reason, they don't have duplicate rent because they're in two locations. And so they have the landlord build out the space. 
so mm. that they don't they're not taking possession, which is what triggers the accounting. It's very hard to do because you lose control, you know, you know, and the auditors are looking over everything. So it's very hard. But for smaller tenants, yeah, you're starting to see uh, more and you see landlords and, um, you know, for example, at one Vanderbilt, they're building on the 54th floor, they're building four, you know, super high end, $200 a foot, I mean, $200 a foot rent, um, you know, 10,000 square foot or a little less, 8,000 square foot suites. And you are seeing more than that. Mm. Um, you know, around because, but the sublease market is so big right now, maybe you're not, you know, you'll probably see a little less of that because you're competing with that market uh, where space is already built out, but because building out space has gotten very expensive and, you know, Mark can speak to this better than me, but it's, you know, gone, I'm seeing budgets now, like that are kind of blowing my mind. You know, I thought, you know, it was 300 a foot. Now I'm seeing 400 a foot in certain circumstances for, you know, top trophy space. And, uh, yeah, so it's a big issue. On the on the um, issue about COVID, that was a big conversation last year. You're seeing a little less of it now. Not really COVID protection. It's more of a retail thing. Certainly on retail leases or anything like that, you get a lot more protection. What I'm seeing is that if, you know, during your construction of tenant improvements, um, there's a problem with COVID and they have to shut down construction, then you get a day-for-day abatement until you can pick it up again. You're not really in that. This is in the class A, you know, kind of buildings. Mm. Um, you're not seeing a lot more than that now. I think people mm. are kind of over that. It was a big conversation a year ago, um, but but it's moved away. But they will protect you on the construction. But once you're in the space, you know, then then it's on your nickel, your risk, your your insurance if you can if you can insure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, a big reason why that got nowhere, as in, you know, being able to exit leases or whatever um, because of COVID or abatements or when the lockouts was just what effect that would have on the mortgagees uh, mortgagees at the end of the day I should say so that wasn't going to fly to start with and it just never took off didn't it no yeah and you know Um, moved on I mean fingers crossed (laughs) Um, well look we've only got a couple of minutes left um, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank you both for your time today I think um, hopefully people found this really really interesting and uh, as you can all tell hopefully um there's just so much more to unpack when it comes to negotiating leases, especially in New York. They're massive documents, many different things that you have to navigate. So I think there'll be, uh, there's more than enough content to do around too. Um, so stay tuned for that. We'd love to see uh, people come again and, and learn a little bit more. But thank you so much, Dale. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time today. Um, and uh, we really appreciate it and hope everyone got a lot out of the call today. Nice. Welcome. Thank you. A lot of fun. Yeah, indeed. Thanks what, very much, everyone. Have a great day. Event tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Have a good Thanks, day. Everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye.